Hello and welcome to My Biggest Lesson, the show that brings you the key learnings from the most influential founders, executives, and investors in the Colorado tech community. My name is Adam Burrows. And I'm Chris Erickson. Together, we are the co-founders of Range Ventures. An early stage venture firm based in Denver. You can find out more about what we're up to at range.vc. One of the incredible things about the Colorado tech ecosystem is how many amazingly impressive people have moved here over the last few years. And Goddard Abel, who's our guest this week, has to be near or at the top of that list. Goddard is the CEO of G2, the leading business software review platform and marketplace, which he co-founded in 2012 and recently became a unicorn with a $1.1 billion valuation. Goddard's also the executive chairman of 3Kit and Logic.io, and previously had two successful multi-hundred million dollar exits in Steelbrick and Big Machines. Goddard, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Yeah, really glad to be here, Chris. So we'd love to jump in and would love for our listeners to learn a little bit about your background. You know, what are you building with G2 and what did you do before that? Yeah, G2, we're really building the trusted place you go for software. Or when we started, we called it a Yelp for business software. And what's exciting, there's now 8 billion business people from all around the world coming to G2 every month to find the best software based on trusted peer reviews. And I have been a enterprise software entrepreneur for about 25 years now. And I think you and I were both at the Stanford Business School, but I was there at the, you know, and tail end of the 1990s when the internet just started and I got into cloud software and been building companies ever since. And tell us a bit about what was the original idea for G2 and what was the opportunity you saw and why did you decide to go after it? And what really inspired G2 was my first company, Big Machines, that I started way back in 2000. And Big Machines turned into an online cloud CPQ app, configure price quote. And I just remember we had a lot of challenges when we were building Big Machines as entrepreneurs. And one of them was it was really hard for software buyers to discover more niche apps like ours. And you know, big machines were specifically targeting large manufacturers that made big machines. And I remember eventually we signed up big companies like GE Energy, Rolls-Royce, their turbine business. And what they'd often say to us are like, wow, we wish we'd found you big machines two or three years ago. We've been trying to build a software in-house. So we saw a tremendous discovery problem for business software buyers. And also, we started a company about 10 years ago, right, when Mark Andreessen said software is eating the world. And so our bet was the software discovery problem is only going to get harder. And we just thought a more consumer-like shopping experience, you know, more like Amazon or more like Yelp, where you could just discover apps online and then use trusted reviews to figure out which app would work best for your business, that our industry was missing it. And probably the last thing I'll say, we were also frustrated by Gartner and Forrester, you know, kind of the traditional analysts covering our market. And, you know, they produced good research, but it was still very much a legacy research model. They would publish a book, let's say, or a quadrant every two years. And we just thought it couldn't keep up with the pace of innovation. And frankly, as entrepreneurs, we felt it was unfair to be graded by one analyst. We'd rather have our customers grade us, you know, with real-time reviews. And that was kind of the genesis you know, to make it easier for software buyers to discover apps and make it easier for software entrepreneurs to validate their apps with happy customer reviews. Yeah, you've been building G2 for, I think, about 10 years. Would love to hear your perspective on how has the ecosystem of SaaS software changed in 10 years? Because I imagine the discovery problem you saw when you started it has only gotten an order of magnitude worse. Yeah, and overall, it's been a 
tremendous growth decade for SaaS, as you know. And now there's well over 100,000 different SaaS apps and cloud services listed on G2. And yeah, I imagine, you know, it's probably gone up five to 10x since we started the company. And now with AI, you know, we have, I think, 12 new categories now on G2 for AI, including generative AI. And so I think, you know, software never stops. Software does keep eating the world. And we also now have over 2,000 categories. And so it is just amazing what software entrepreneurs around the world come up with. And G2 is now the place, I think they also go to list their apps and start getting that customer validation. I'd love to hear a bit on your perspective on how building a company has changed versus the early 2000s and, you know, sort of late 90s, right? Because you had a, a front row seat to that, right? Being in the Valley during that. Um, would love to hear you contrast what it was like then and then what it was like when you launched and built G2. How had things changed? Yeah. And I think in a lot of ways, it's gotten a lot easier. You know, certainly just having cloud infrastructure from AWS or Google or Azure. Because I remember we had to raise a lot of money. In my first year at Big Machines, we actually had to buy all these Sun servers, Oracle database licenses. So literally just to spin up our first SaaS app, you know, probably cost at least a million dollars and took like a year. And all of that now, obviously, when we started G2, we put it on Heroku, which is AWS, and we could just spin it up. That was 10 years later. We could spin it up in like a few seconds and never had to worry about infrastructure. So that's just one, I think, key layer that didn't exist that's making it so much easier to build and kind of deploy your MVP. I remember we, you know, my company that I built in the Bay Area, we had our second office was at 4th and Brannon. Mm. And uh, when we moved in, and this was, we moved in that space in 2014 or 2015, there was still a back room in the space that was a legacy server room, right? They just had like empty racks and racks, right? And all the cooling and everything that that had put in the room. And same as you, we were running on Heroku, right? Type of thing. And just the, the night and day difference of, you know, what you had to have to start a company back then versus how easy it is today, right? Yeah. With the infrastructure and tooling and, and, and languages and open source, it makes it so much easier to get going with it. So we'd love to talk a bit about, you know, Colorado Tech and your experience. I know you're relatively new to the ecosystem here and you've spent time in a few different tech ecosystems, the Bay Area, Chicago, and now here. We'd love to hear what you're seeing here and what you're excited about with the potential in the Colorado and Boulder area. And Chris, I do see a ton of potential in Colorado. And I did come, you know, most recently I was living in Palo Alto. So in the middle of the Silicon Valley, and obviously that ecosystem, I think is still unmatched, but I do think there's tremendous potential here. And frankly, like myself, I came out here because I love the mountains. I love the lifestyle. Came out during the pandemic about three years ago. I think it's not just me, right? There's so many software engineers. And also I think the top tech companies in the world now have realized that. So right here in Boulder, you know, I think uh, Google's obviously got a big office, Facebook. I heard Apple is just opening an office. So I think that's bringing great talent, great engineers. And I do think that was always a thing that Silicon Valley as well, right? You had Stanford, you had Berkeley, you had all these great engineers. And I do think to really build disruptive tech, it starts with engineers. And I think maybe what's missing a bit, and that's actually why I'm excited. I'm just committed to becoming an LP in Range Ventures. Because I think that whole just a company building factory, if you will, of the Silicon Valley, which includes capital. And I think also just the ambition that, you know, I think you kind of just absorb when you're in the valley because there's just so many entrepreneurs. I remember when I was at Stanford Business School this many years ago, but there was like Jerry Yang, you know, at the time, uh, Yahoo founder. We also had Bill Gates, Microsoft founder, Scott McNeely. 
Sun founder, they all came and speak to us. And so I think also now, you know, inspiring the next generation, that's something I'm excited about. And one cool thing also I've seen happen here in Boulder, I've joined YPO, but there's a lot of entrepreneurs that have moved out. And I think now, especially with the cloud, right, you can build software companies anywhere and funding will go anywhere. So I think it's very promising, but I also still say it feels small. You know, so I think the future for Colorado Tech, I'd say is largely ahead of us. And I hope, you know, we can turn G2 into a winner, uh, you know, right here from, uh, from Boulder into a big global IPO. And I think Colorado needs more of that. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, one of the most powerful things for me being in the Bay Area that, that both pushed me to go start a company and I think pushed the level of ambition was seeing other people around you that were ahead of you in terms of the level of success. And I think we have that now here, right? There's 19 unicorns in the state of Colorado. And you you back up, you know, three, four years ago, there had been three over the prior decade, right? And I think people are looking to those leaders um, in the ecosystem and saying, hey, you know, I can do that as well now. And I think it's really exciting to see what happens with that wave of company. And that's just going to generate the next wave after that as well. So I, I'm really hopeful as well. Um, you know, on the company front, is there one company in the ecosystem here that you're really excited about that other than G2? Yes, Jump Cloud. And I recently had coffee right here in Boulder, Ozo Coffee with Greg Keller, you know, one of the founding team members of Jump Cloud. And what I do love about Jump Cloud, you know, they're also a leader on G2, 1783 reviews, and they're right up there you know, with Okta and Microsoft as being one of the world's leading identity and access management software companies. And I do think they're also going to build a meaningful public company, a massive winner. And so really exciting to meet Greg right here in Boulder and see that kind of a global scale company being built right here in Colorado. Yeah, it, Jump Cloud's an amazing company. And it's, it's, they're one of that generation, right, that I think will be public in the next few years. And once that happens, right, the talent and capital that comes back into the ecosystem is just more fuel that gets that cycle going uh, that I'm really excited about. So let, let's jump to why we're here, Goddard, and talk about you, your biggest lesson. You, you've built multiple companies, multiple time founder, and I'm sure you've learned a bunch of lessons along the way, but I'd love to hear what's the biggest lesson you've learned? How did you learn it? And how does it change how you work today? And I'd say the biggest lesson is becoming a more conscious leader. But like a lot of entrepreneurs, while I was building my first company, Big Machines, we had a lot of near-death moments. And I just had so much fear, anxiety, and doubt in my forehead. It felt like a storm cloud of anxiety. And honestly, for quite a few years, the company felt really heavy. It felt like a great burden on my shoulders. And uh, honestly, I didn't know how to deal with the anxiety and I wasn't taking good care of myself. You know, I was just kind of trying to work all the time. I'd fall asleep at my laptop, which clearly wasn't productive. And frankly, I was eating too much to stuff my anxiety, drinking too much. I just wasn't very healthy. And at the same time, my wife and I, in 2004, we had twins. Then we had our daughter three years later. And uh, yeah, that also, frankly, added to my anxiety. And I felt like my company was failing. My dad was my first investor. I'd recruited my best friends. I felt like the company was failing. So for a while, I just felt like, wow, yeah, I'm going to lose like my dad's money, ruin my friends' careers. And I just felt like, you know, like I was failing for many years. And it was just a heavy burden of anxiety. And eventually, I was lucky I joined YPO. And through my YPO forum, I met Jim Dethmer, who became my coach. And he started a whole movement around conscious leadership. And uh, so just becoming more conscious, more self-aware has allowed me, I think, to just better deal with that anxiety, deal with that fear. 
and you know, build companies in a much more joyous way you know, ever since. Was there one specific example at eBig Machine that sticks out that was like, oh, this is the turning point where I realize I need to do something differently than I'm doing? Or was it just an accumulation of the different things, the amount of stress that it added to you? I mean, I think one thing I remember doing almost every night, and it's kind of weird, but at that time we were actually living in Chicago suburbs, but I remember like, you know, kind of to fall asleep, it'd be like around midnight and I just want to stop working, but I'd eat like a bowl of frosted mini wheats. And frankly, like I clearly wasn't hungry. And then I remember one night I just kind of like fell asleep on the couch in our family room and like my wife just kind of waking me up and like, hey, what's wrong with you? And uh, so it just felt like, and I guess one other story related to that, on like Saturday mornings, you know, I would take care of the kids when they were all little, as in our basement in our house. And yeah, like this was supposed to be my time to like play with with my boys. They were like little twins crawling around, but honestly, I, I couldn't stay awake. I was just falling asleep on the couch. And uh, luckily, like they didn't like stick their hand in the socket or anything, you know, but but I just wasn't connecting with them. I wasn't there for them. So I think like that really made me realize, wow, like, you know, like is entrepreneurship really worth it? So what are the things that you do today that allow you to be more conscious, more healthy, not feel that same burden um, that you did? And then how does that change how you show up both at work and personally? I think the shift for me came through working on conscious leadership with my coach, Jim Dethmer. Mm -hmm. And I remember I started working with my coach. And the first thing he would have me do is meditate and we'd kind of do a guided meditation for me, focusing on my breath. And we'd start every coaching session doing five minutes of that. I remember the first time I did it, I'm like, all of a sudden, like the storm cloud of anxiety lifted. Uh, but I felt really tired. Like I was sitting in my chair in my office with my coach, Jim, and I'm like, wow, Jim, like this is great. Like I feel very relaxed and calm. But I'm like, but I could never get any work done this way. You know, because my anxiety, my fear was fueling me. And Jim just kind of laughed. He said, hey, that's very normal, Godard. You know, like most people that do this the first time, that's what they experience. But then he kind of said, hey, there is this world out there where you can be calm and present. And at the same time, getting a lot of stuff done, like the doing just happens through you from a state of ease and flow. And honestly, at the time, I was very skeptical. I'm like, Jim, that sounds great. And then I would go get a Diet Coke to get amped back up because I'm like, Jim, I got to get work done. I got to build my company. But then after practicing for a few years, practicing meditation, awareness, I got to a state where I could work more from a zone of ease and flow. And I think what helped me get that concept, I'd always been an athlete. Like in college, I did crew. And one good thing I still did during those years, I would still go for runs. And I don't know if you're a runner, Chris, but like some days you go for a run and it like feels easy, right? And the miles are just flying by. You're kind of in the zone. You're in flow. And like a lot of works, your body's doing a lot of work, but it doesn't feel like it. And I think that to me is, I kind of said, oh, wow, I could get that same state at work where I'm in calm, present, in ease and flow, but a lot of work's just getting done. The work's just happening through me. And I think that's the ultimate state of consciousness. And I'm not there all the time now either. And also what Jim taught me was a lot of times you're still quote unquote below the line which means you know, you're working from anger, anxiety, fear, you're feeling those below line emotions. But then with breathing, you can shift back above the line to kind of a creative, co-creative space where you are calm, present, and aware, co-creating with ease with others. And I think more and more now I can be aware when I'm below the line 
and shift back to being above the line. And that concept of you know being self-aware, being conscious at work has made, I think my work so much more joyous. You know, I still have fear, doubt, and anxiety, even building V2, you know, but now I'm able to remind myself, hey, this actually isn't life or death because entrepreneurship often feels like that way to us. But at the end of the day, it's not, right? We're not out in the jungle being chased by a lion, although it feels like that. You know, but I can remind myself, no, like I can breathe, I can shift back to presence. And uh, so that's been tremendously helpful. And it's also, I think, improved how I interact with my colleagues. I now have a conscious leadership coach also at work, Sue Heilbronner. She's actually based right here in Boulder, but she actually works with me and my leadership team now and constantly reminds me. She's in all my leadership team meetings. And when I go below the line, you know, she'll help remind me, bring me back to presence, bring us back to co-creation. And so it's just been a wonderful tool I've used ever since to make, you know, I think our work more fun and also more effective. And are there any tactical things? You mentioned meditation as sort of one tool. Are there any other tactical things that you, you do on a regular basis that help put you in the space where you can recognize when you're below the line and more easily come back up above the line? And I do think it's a daily practice of self-care. And I don't think there's any great secrets, but now I do it with discipline, you know, aiming to get eight hours of sleep. So I have an aura ring. And so I'm always monitoring my sleep and my biorhythmics. And I actually have my assistant now schedule one hour block every day, which I call my peak physical spiritual time. And it's in my calendar, transparent to all our employees, because frankly, we also encourage them to do the same. And I, yeah, I do take that hour. Usually I, I'll do an outdoor activity. Uh, every morning I'll meditate for 10 minutes. So I think taking an hour every day to just take care of myself physically, spiritually, puts me in a place where it's much easier to be above the line and much easier to deal with the stress and anxiety you know, I do still face as an entrepreneur. That makes sense. Um, so one of the other questions is like, is there, do you coach the rest of your leadership team on this as well? Because it sounds like you mentioned you have your leadership coach join for this and it's had a huge benefit for you. Is this something that you actively, you know, encourage your other executives to do, or is it more of a choose your own adventure for the rest of your leadership team in terms of how they want to manage themselves through this? I do encourage them to do it. And so Sue, like I said, comes to our leadership meeting. She's trained us all on the basics of conscious leadership and she's available, but I think coaching also only works if you want to be coached. So she also says that, but if any of my leadership team, I expose them to it, I encourage it, but it's up to them. But if they do choose, you know, that if they want coaching, we provide that for them and we do invest money in it. I've also aligned with my board. I mean, coaches can actually be expensive. But I do think you get a great ROI, you know, and then maybe it's a little bit harder sale to make to some boards, but I do think, you know, ultimately when the team is more conscious, more in their zone of genius, they will produce more, although it's, yeah, you know, it's a bit abstract, but I do believe it's really worth investing in. And so I always also encourage entrepreneurs I meet and frankly, investors, like I think it's actually a great investment you know, to make in yourself and or in the company. So Goddard, thank you very much for joining us today and sharing your lesson. What's the best way for our listeners to follow what you're up to at G2? Yeah, I think follow me on LinkedIn. That's probably my favorite social network. I'm just Godard Abel. Feel free to connect on LinkedIn or obviously follow me on Twitter, Godard Abel. I'm still on Twitter. I know it's a little bit more controversial now, but uh, those are two great places to follow me. And I think if you want to reach out on LinkedIn, you know, uh, my email is Godard at G2. And I uh, would love to hear from some front range entrepreneurs and so like I said, Chris, I'm excited to you know, partner with you and Range to help fuel the ecosystem here. Well, thank you. We're excited to have you in the ecosystem, and we're looking forward to G2 becoming a huge public company here in Colorado.